0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners, who for more than 25 years have successfully delivered interim and permanent leadership talent to transform businesses. To hire the talent you need to enable your business to thrive, visit www.progressotalent.com today. Elham Fardad is the CEO and founder of Migrant Leaders, the charity programme set up to help young migrants develop their talents, succeed in Britain and achieve their career aspirations in large corporates. Concurrently, they will feel a productive and valued member of British society, thereby boosting social mobility, tackling discrimination and strengthening communities. For her work on migrant leaders, Elham has been selected as finalist for several awards, including Charity Times Charity of the Year, Charity Leader of the Year and Institute of Directors Director of the Year. Her professional career spans 25 years in senior leadership roles in blue-chip multinationals including GE, News Corp and Ernst & Young. So what's the story behind the story? Without further ado, let's get into it. Ellen, welcome to the Astrology podcast. It's great to have you as my guest here today. And uh, as is customary in conversations such as these on Astrology, we like to start with the early days. So I wonder if you might start by telling us for a bit of background, where did you grow up and therefore, what was childhood like for you?
1: Thank you. Thank um... you. Childhood for me was um, full of hopes, dreams and imagination, to be honest. I was born in Iran, grew up there until the age age of 13. And after that, due to the Iran-Iraq war, the bombardments and a lot of challenges, we moved to the UK. So I had my teenage years in the city of Birmingham in the West Midlands. And um, it was an interesting upbringing because when we came to the UK... It, it was really a journey of discovery and excitement. Uh, my British friends really helped me and supported me in my most difficult and challenging moments. But our family broke up, and we faced a lot of uh, financial, visa, and other challenges. So by the time I was eighteen, I had uh, very little going for me apart from my academic ability.
0: I mean that's a that's a huge challenge. A thing that always strikes me that anybody who's been through. You know, moving moving from, as a teenager, moving schools is a challenge. Moving from one city to a new city is a challenge. Moving from a city to the countryside is a challenge. You, you, moving from country to country, I, I've not been through that. I, I, how must that have felt? What was that like? What was that experience like for you?
1: Certainly it was different. And um, as a 13-year-old Iranian female, I felt the change, but... What I recall is predominantly feeling of excitement, of possibilities, of hope, particularly because in this country, by then, there were key female leaders who I really found I could aspire towards. Particularly today, I'd want to mention the Queen and how exemplary she has been in terms of her service to the country and her work ethic. And even now and in the future, uh, I will draw from my knowledge of her and and her service to the country. Uh, And I'd like to emulate that in all of us. So it was really a move to a country which was very different to where I came from. And I learned a lot. Uh, I went to three different state schools in three years in Birmingham. So that change was challenging, but also gave me some experiences and skills that I may not have otherwise gained.
0: I mean, I could draw all sorts of assumptions around resilience and all those sorts of things, but did, what do you think that that early experience equipped you with?
1: Um, I'll give you some examples. You know, when I think about how I spent after university, 25 years as a finance director in GE, News Corp and EY, in EY, for example, in um, finance advisory, uh, we had to form new teams time, big teams, project teams, client work, meeting clients, colleagues, onboard new talent, Um, you have to constantly um, meet new people and find things in common and collaborate. Changing three schools in three years and into pretty tough status schools really showed me that there is a lot to be gained by finding things in common rather than seeing uh, differences. So I learned to celebrate our differences and our unique capabilities.
0: Was arriving in the UK what you imagined it was going to be?
1: In some ways, yes. In other ways, no. I found the British culture very predominantly welcoming. Yes, there were always one or two people who uh, were racist and fearful of anyone remotely new. Mm. But I tended to ignore those. I focused on the 90% who really supported me and were friendly how was it different? I think there were some cultural differences, but I remember when we landed in the UK, my father told me, this is a land of opportunity and information, things that you didn't have before, particularly as a female. So pay attention, keep the good stuff in our culture and learn the good stuff from their culture. So that is to this day, a formula that I follow. Anyone I come across who's different to me, I try and transfer my knowledge and good things I know, and I try and learn from them the good things they know. And um, to this day, to be honest, that seems to have worked constructively.
0: So, so what, what were your interests as a, as a child, as a teenager? What, what sort of things were you into?
1: Well, I liked maths and science, really liked maths and science. And I loved reading. I devoured books. And that was one of the challenges because you know, this is in 1986 when we came to the UK. There was nothing digital uh, and hardly any free content. So my biggest problem was running out of books to read and not being able to afford to purchase books. I devoured libraries. That's all I remember. Mm. You know, I remember going to the local Oak library and the lady telling me, look, you've read everything appropriate for your age and Some things that are perhaps not so appropriate for your age. Uh, I I did the same with my parents' bookshelf in Iran, uh, reading um, all sorts of publications and uh, books and uh, things that were written for adults, but I learned a lot. I loved it. So reading, reading, reading and doing maths and science, that became a little bit of um, a way of making friends as well, because the schools I went to, the level of STEM subjects and maths, um, literacy, numeracy were very low in the schools I went to, so I discovered that's one of the ways I can make friends by helping kids who want to improve in those subjects. And when I needed money, because my dad wouldn't give me initially when I was younger any pocket money, so I thought I'll make my own money. So I used to charge five pounds for forty-five minutes, and the deal was if if I, if I teach whoever wishes to wishes it. I would teach them maths for 45 minutes at a time, charge five pounds each time, which was a very good rate. It's for those a great days. rate. <laughs> the sweetener in that deal was if they ever fail the maths test again, they get their money back. And I never had to give their money back because it's not, it's not that difficult. It's just a bunch of formulae and a bunch of rules. And when you start succeeding in anything, you feel great. So you want to learn more and succeed more. I just had to press that button in them and teach them a few tricks. That's it, and it worked. And that seemed seemed to be an amusement in my schools.
0: Well, I, I, <laughs> I mean, that's a fascinating. So there's that whole debate around. You know, you, you, we often hear, and we'll come onto the career that you've subsequently enjoyed. But we often hear those stories of people, you know, early in life who, you know, whether it was washing cars, delivering newspapers, running a tuck shop, whatever it might be, these entrepreneurial stories around innovation and ideas and, an opportunity to make a few quid, you know, and, and, and actually interestingly that you should have identified, ha- had you, and that whole debate around nature, nurture, had, had you that sort of entrepreneurial role model that you you'd inherited that sort of behavior from or seen or witnessed it? Or was it just something that was intuitively inherent within you?
1: I think it was a combination of the two because First of all, scarce resources meant that, you know, because I was the first child in both families, at that time, we didn't have so much resources. So scarce resources really helped because I needed to earn the money. The other thing was that I watched my father and my grandmother being entrepreneurial throughout my childhood because they had to. So that's definitely ignited it. But it's amazing what necessity does. And necessity really creates invention.
0: So tell me, what was behind? You mentioned maths and science as well as as, as literature, but maths and science and, and and books are a big part of your childhood. Do you remember a point at which you thought, right? Okay, so finance is the is the career path that, from a corporate perspective, that's the route I'm going to follow. I guess why finance, not science?
1: Exactly, my plan actually was science or mathematics. I knew exactly which which branch of mathematics I enjoyed most. I knew what subjects and topics in science I really was curious about and could see myself a lifetime of research and innovation in. But my father kind of nudged me uh, before my parents broke up when I was 16. He said, look, you've scored all the right grades in your GCSEs. You could do the science or maths that you want, but... I see you in a more female-friendly profession, such as accountancy and finance, and look at how this economy operates. I can see you being more commercially successful in finance and accounting. I trusted that, and it's worked out well. Finance and accounting was the door, was the key to, to the door of business and corporates, and. Uh, I realised that even my love of science gives me a way of thinking that is systematic. And um, My love of maths gives me a feel for what drives a business and the levers of efficiency, effectiveness and value. So, you know, every day I still use my love of maths and science in, in my work.
0: From which flowed a, a very successful corporate career with you say, as you've alluded to, with the likes of GE, with News Corp, with, uh, with, with Ernst & Young. What were the highlights for you? There are particular highlights that really stand out from your perspective?
1: Oh, there were so many highlights. My goodness. I think the common highlight across my career was being able to help others succeed. The common denominator I see is of found focusing on myself and my own career really unsatisfactory. Um, you, you know, you get, it's a bit like a drug, you progress, you get promotions, you earn more, and yeah, it feels good for a while. And yes, we must do that, but it's just not enough. What I found much more deeply satisfying throughout my career was helping colleagues and others succeed uh, and transferring knowledge and also learning from others. Uh, really deeply satisfying, which kind of led me to launch Migrant Leaders charity five years ago. I've gone back to what I find really satisfying.
0: Was there ever a sense through that corporate career, if you go back to that teenage instinct to earn money, and again, there's a theme there in terms of teaching others, helping others, but was there ever a sense that you might have removed yourself from from corporate life to start your own business at any point? Was that a, ever a thought process through which you went? Before Migrant Leaders, I hasten to add.
1: Honestly, I always had an entrepreneurial bug, but I always believed, I think rightly, that you can be an entrepreneur within a large corporate. Mm-hmm. What we did at EY, for example, our portfolio of clients, our portfolio of connections, it is really entrepreneurship within a corporate. I didn't need to have my own business in order to be an entrepreneur. Micro leaders emerged five years ago because of a problem I came across that I felt really passionate about and one that I thought I could bring value to, which is that of ethnic diversity in the UK corporate. And so that's how Micro Leaders started really five years ago.
0: I was getting to one of my questions is kind of what was the inspiration behind it? Do you, do you remember, was there that, that sort of, if you like, eureka moment? Do you remember? And do you remember therefore how that f- came about? How you felt when you saw that there's a there's a problem here? I think first and foremost, most everything stems from there's a problem to be solved. And I feel I've got a solution to solve it. Do you remember that sort of eureka moment? And therefore you thought there's a number of an idea here that I could turn into something really worthwhile.
1: Yeah. I remember vividly how that felt because I read the Parker review and this was five years ago and I read it and read it, you know, two or three bedtimes. I read it again, again, and again to absorb what's going on here. The Parker review, if you remember, looks at the ethnic diversity of UK corporates. Hmm. And that was a problem that really the Parker review outlined very well. I looked at the qualitative information, the recommendations, the data. I put the data in a spreadsheet and tried to cut the data in different ways, not just ethnic minorities, but also by social mobility, by number of migrants who make director in FTSE 100 and FTSE 250 companies. So I came across a problem and it became a bit like a maths or science problem. I tried to understand it more, understand it more. And there was a eureka moment when I realized, oh, my goodness, this lack of ethnic diversity in UK corporates and the complexity of the problem. And the root causes of the problem mean that we're never going to get there if we carry on the way we are. So I felt this a strong urge to do something about it. And I thought, OK, how would the 16-year-old, 17-year-old Elham, what, what, what did she need as a young migrant in Birmingham? And the high-level design of the program really emerged from that. I didn't actually plan to launch a charity, but as luck would have it, I was looking at the Parker Review, thinking, 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 analyzing. And then we went on holiday to China as a family for two weeks. And I had jet lag for the first time. Sometimes luck works in mysterious ways. For the first time ever, I had jet lag. We would sleep at midnight. I would wake up at 4 a.m. every day, just looking in our hotel room ceiling, thinking... God, I've got to keep quiet for five hours until 9 a.m. so I don't wake the family up. Then I thought, you know, you could get frustrated about this jet lag and waste of time, or you could do something about it. So within two weeks, between 4 a.m. and 9 a.m. each day, in the bathroom of the hotel room, I started writing the plan for migrant leaders. By the end of the two weeks, I had a half-decent high-level design of the development program. So I set up meetings for when we land in London so that I can consult with people on this and that's how it all happened
0: so what did you start with did you start with this right here's a vision of what I want to achieve did you start there or then did you start thinking right well, I need to design a program to deliver this to resolve it? oh oh this looks like oh this looks like an organization and now maybe it's a charity what was the, the thought process the journey behind it
1: I think definitely kind of it has started on the in the detail of how do we solve this problem? How do we solve this problem? And then the solution began to emerge in my mind in terms of what was I lacking as a first-generation migrant? Ah, I needed a mentor. I needed a sponsor, someone who would vouch for me and help me get the job interviews in, in impossibly leading practice organisations. I remember when I was 15, there was a very posh part of Birmingham in Cornwall Row and the Ernest & Young building was there. I remember as a 15-year-old on Saturdays, going to town, just walking around, window shopping, looking at things I can't afford. And I looked at the Ernest & Young building every Saturday. It became a ritual. And dream, could I one day work in Ernest & Young? I can't believe that I forgot to mention this at my EY interview. You know, It didn't even occur to me to mention this in my EY interview 25 years later or 20 years later. But I got the job, so it must be all right. So really, I asked myself in designing the Migrant Leaders Development Programme, what was I missing when I was 16? And that became the high-level design, but I recognized that it needs some leading practice the latest development programs in it. So I looked at, okay, the leadership programs that I went through in GE, the Advanced Financial Leadership Programme I was on at GE, the EY partner program, you know, what are some of the common components of top leadership programs? And is that appropriate for young people of disadvantaged backgrounds? So I put that high level program together. And at that point, I thought it's brilliant. I thought, fantastic, the young people are going to congratulate me on how leading practice this is. And in October 2017, I held a youth conference with about 35 young people. And they were brutally honest. (laughs)
0: Where did did you find them, first and foremost? How did you go about getting 35 young people in a room?
1: It was basically everyone I knew who knew someone, you know, as ever. All the army of people I had worked with and enjoyed getting to know throughout my professional and personal life, they came to my help. And I'm so grateful because without that support and connections, none of this could have happened. So 30, 35 young people in the room, and I outlined the program on the screen for them. And I thought they were going to be energized. They were going to love it. And a bit of that happened. But in reality, many of them gave me brutally honest feedback. I remember this very clever 16-year-old. She told me, quite, she seemed quite animated and even angry. Uh, and she said, but that's not how young people learn. And you're telling us to do this module and that module in monthly intervals. It's really rigid. That's not how we like to learn. That's not how we do things. And and I thought, my God, this feels like a pivotal moment. I should actually ask her, how would you do it? So she said, we need choices. We know what we want and what we don't want. You've got to give us choices for the modules and experiences and other things. And we'll decide which ones we want to turn up to. So what I heard was that she wants a more dynamic program that gives the power to the young people to make choices. So that's exactly what we incorporated into the program, and as a, res- as a result, uh, the program is really exciting, really dynamic, and hopefully uh, something that young people can relate to.
0: That's a really great lesson, isn't it? It's that whole principle when you're launching a business, you you, you seek prospective customer opinion on the product or the service or whatever it might be. But that, that actually, in that sense, you get that kind of really raw very real feedback in real time from people who are going to embrace this, potentially, this program, that must have been a great learning experience.
1: It really was. And also it was a personal lesson for me to leave one's ego at the door. It's incredible how much value our egos destroy because we don't listen to the customer feedback. We are constantly seeing decisions from our individual perspective, not the perspective of what derives value for everyone else. So if we change our perspective to what is right and creates value for everybody, rather than just me, 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 and leave our egos at the door, we would make entirely different decisions and do things differently.
0: So I'm intrigued as to how you go about setting up a charity. Now that may seem like a really naive question. I've, I've, I know people listening to this podcast will have, have set up businesses or would have helped to set up businesses or will know what's involved in setting up a limited company perhaps or but setting up a charity is you know i have no knowledge and and i'm intrigued as to how you go about establishing a charity what's the journey
1: well guess what five years ago i had no knowledge of that either (laughs) but i took the view it's not rocket science you know you can learn anything you really can so i knew that once again i need I need to open my mind to what I don't know. And I was lucky enough that a couple of the previous managing directors I worked with um, knew people who were charity leaders. For example, the CEO of the Mayor's Fund for London met with me two or three times and gave me pivotal advice about what can go wrong in a mentoring program and a development program or disadvantaged young people, Mm. because it's a little bit different developing young talent straight out of Russell Group Universities in EY versus disadvantaged young people who may not have the same confidence or track record. So that kind of helped me calibrate my thinking and make adjustments in the program. I learned, for example, that the mentoring program needs to have proper training for mentors and mentees. I need an operational team that we uh, support and pay so that we can together support the mentors and mentees. I learned what things can go wrong. I learned that there's a regulatory framework that we must really, really adhere to. And I read the Charity Commission website inside out, I think, 20 times so that I really understand my regulatory obligations and responsibilities because coming from a finance and regulatory background, I think that's one of the first things you've got to get right in setting up any legal entity, regardless of its form.
0: So, so what is it that you set out to achieve?
1: Impact. And at the end, it's all about training the young people, giving them confidence and leadership skills, but also training them, building their capabilities and guiding them and sponsoring them through their mentors. We've got now more than a 1,000 senior mentors from 95 FTSE 100 and leading firms. We've got more than 12 key corporate partners, including ABB, Anglo-American, Smith & Nephew, Salesforce, BP, and others, with whom we co-develop insight days and work experiences and internships that are really unique and give the deep experiences, quality work experiences as well as connections to the young people sponsorships so that they can land the apprenticeships the graduate jobs and opportunities that will really early in their life change the rest of their um, their career trajectory
0: and what have been some of the the challenges that that have been presented to you along the way, particularly in those early days, because my sense is you've got, you know, in in the form of the, the, the Parker review, you've got some really meaningful, well-respected data to present. You know, the, the the source of which is, you know, it's not up for debate. This this is real, right? So there's a there's a challenge, and and organisations missing out on huge swathes of talent through having these sorts of blind spots. Where were the challenges? How did you get over it?
1: I think early on the organisations track record and capability was going to be the first hurdle. But as far as possible, you know, none of us have um, hindsight, but again, talking to good advisors, I realized that the organization's quality of work, track record and capability are the things that I've got to build first. So we very deliberately phased the growth of the number of mentees and mentors so that we focus more at the beginning on building excellent program, policies, processes, procedures, really robust organization so that we can gain the credibility and track record so that we can land corporate partners. And with that approach, uh, we were lucky enough that within six months of launching the charity, Anglo-American became a sponsor. And then Smith and & Nephew and Cantor followed shortly after. Then ABB, WestCon, and others joined and are continuing to join as corporate partners. So that early challenge was overcome by having a good framework. Ongoing challenges, really, and this one is an important one, considering the whole purpose of migrant leaders is to have a positive impact on the outcomes for young people. The biggest challenge is reaching as many young people as we can, because four years ago, we opened up the program, not just for first or second generation young migrants, but we opened up the program to all disadvantaged British young people. So white British disadvantaged young people can apply to Migrant Leaders Programme and are very welcome. 4% of our thousand mentees are white British disadvantaged because we want to be inclusive and we want to help them as well. So really our challenge is to reach out to as many disadvantaged young people across the country as possible so that they can take advantage of our free programme. Our program is completely free because our charity is mostly funded through our corporate partnerships.
0: And how do you go about that outreach? Is, is there because I said that there's an awful lot of very talented, very capable, very deserving young people across the country who don't who who may not. Oftentimes, that phrase you don't know what you don't know. So that, that you know that understanding that perhaps they that they're not aware as to what opportunities might be. How do you how do you overcome that hurdle? Because that's a huge hurdle to overcome, I'd imagine.
1: It is and. I don't know of any shortcuts, to be honest. Over the last five years, every week, I have been talking to two or three schools, colleges, sixth form colleges, universities. I individually write to young people um, so that they become talent ambassadors for migrant leaders. I don't know any other way other than hard work and just continuing to reach out to schools, colleges, and universities, and young people. The advantage of that, even though it is hard work, The advantage of that for me, particularly as the charity CEO, is that I never lose touch with the communities. Mm. I'm constantly talking to the communities, hearing from the young people, in a way, talking to the customer every day. I mentor directly seven or eight of the migrant leaders' mentees. I talk to many of them every day. And even though it takes plenty of my time and energy and care, it is well worth the effort
0: hindsight's a wonderful thing. If you reflect back over the last five years, is there anything that you would have done differently? Of course.
1: Maybe my own limitations in my mind have played a part here as well. I think any anytime that I had opportunities to talk about migrant leaders to media, I always took the view that, no, we're not quite there yet. We're not ready yet. We're not good enough yet. And apparently it's quite a typical ethnic minority approach that we've got to be Absolutely excellent! Before I deserve to go on top of roofs and shout out about it, and I'm trying to push myself to overcome my own limitations and to say that actually, well done to you, and well done to everybody who uh, contributes to migrant leaders, and um, well done to us. We deserve to shout out about migrant leaders, and we must reach out as many disadvantaged young people as possible. So I try and use my sense of duty to the young people to overcome this hurdle I have in my own mind of feeling like, are we good enough to shout out? Uh, yes, we are. We are Absolutely. very much good enough to shout out and, and we have a duty to do it. So I try and mobilize myself through a sense of duty.
0: What do you think are the three most important things that you've learned in the last five years through my, mi- through migrant leaders?
1: The most important things I've learned are probably from the young people. You know, when you spend 20, 25 years in the corporates and you get promotions, you're constantly given feedback, good or not so good, constructive, you begin to think, oh, you're doing well and you must be all right and even you're great. And that's a bit of an illusion because if you go and talk to other people in the communities, you realize what you don't know and you realize you've got a lot more to learn. So, Migrant leaders has really opened up my mind. What have I learned? I've learned that actually disadvantage and adversity could happen to any of us. I never, ever now judge anybody for their lack of achievement or lack of progression or for their disadvantages. I realise that could happen to any of us. And that has really shifted some paradigms in my mind. The other thing I've learned is any one of us could achieve anything. A lot of success can happen in a short period of time when the right opportunities are given to you. So I've learned from the young people to become the 16-year-old me again where anything was possible. That excitement of youth has come back to me. And that's quite a privilege to, to feel young again. So I'm really grateful for that.
0: Yeah, very energizing, I'd imagine, being around being around young people very energizing
1: they are they are amazing they're amazing and i've also discovered what i really enjoy i've realized that yes this was never about money monetary success for me this was about creating value because i have found my corporate career equally exhilarating as i have found being in migrant leaders and creating value so it was never about Profit or money or a salary it was always about creating value, and that has shown something about what I enjoy for my future decisions
0: how much of an av- that corporate career to which you refer how much of an advantage do you think it has been that you having enjoyed the success that you'd enjoyed within great organizations that you you understood how they think how they the challenges they're having to overcome how the procedures, the controls, the systems, the processes that exist within those organisations, how things have to look, how they have to sound, how they have to be presented, that, having that 25 years of experience when it comes to them presenting a proposition that can truly solve some of the issues these organisations, how much of an advantage do you think that has been?
1: For me, it has been pivotal. I would go as far as saying there was no way I could have made migrant leaders what it is without that type of corporate career. No way. The the leading practice, the connections, the credibility, uh, the know-how, all of it I have gained really from my corporate career. But I do recognize that there are different paths. There are some other charity leaders and charity workers who have gained their experience and insights from a different path. And that's all right. I can only describe how it's worked
0: for me. And and so what excites you about the future for migrant leaders?
1: I'm really, really excited that, that we have a program here that is really robust, that is really innovative and leading practice actually, and it's quite unique. No other charity does what migrant leaders does. And what excites me is that because we were quite patient in the last four or five years in building that robustness and a really solid program. We can now scale it up. We could exponentially multiply its positive impact on, on many, many multiples of the number of young people that we impact today. We have a thousand mentors, just over a thousand mentors and a thousand mentees. We could next become five thousand mentors and five thousand mentees and perhaps even more. So I feel really excited that together we've created something here that can have many more times the value that it creates today. And I'm really proud of us. I'm proud of all of us.
0: It just strikes me that it's limitless as to the possibilities. And I guess that the challenge is always the same it's message, isn't it? Can you get enough, you get enough to enough people, get enough mentors, enough mentees, and then continue to feed those through? I guess, you know, success is, continued success will help. And clearly, you've got some wonderful corporate partners who are real advocates of the program and, and can see the success that it's delivering not only for the, for the young people that are engaging with them, but also for them as organisations, how it's developing their people, how it's developing opportunities within their own organisations. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's such a super programme. You, you mentioned creating value. One of the questions I'm always fascinated to understand is perhaps what does success mean to you? You've talked a little bit about that, but if I might just delve a little bit deeper. What, what, what does success mean to you?
1: Well, I think what success means to me kind of solidified by the time I was age 10, because my father always shared his life story with me. He came from a village in Iran, in the county of Azerbaijan, which didn't have water or electricity, didn't have a school. He had to, as an eight-year-old, run to the next village every day in the freezing cold of Azerbaijan in, in Iran, because the wolves would otherwise catch you if you don't run. He had to run every day to the next village in order to attend any school. He was academically gifted. He got a scholarship at 18 to go to the top engineering university in the country. And the rest is a big story. But he always told me how important it is to have a positive imp- impact in the communities that we live. One of the first instructions, if you like, he gave when we came to the UK is you must contribute to the UK economy. You must pay your taxes, you must help the communities in the UK, you must get on well with the British, Uh, you must be a law-abiding citizen in this country. So for me, there are many ways people can add value by growing their communities and Growing the economy, helping the communities they live in, uh, showing respect and care to the others around them. Value comes in all shapes and forms. And that's the beauty of life. Uh, We don't have to be a finance person to create value. You can be in any field. You can be anybody and really create value. I'll give you an example. Seven, eight years ago, I was doing the London night walk, uh, which was for the homeless in London with an EY colleague. We had walked 25 kilometers throughout the night and by 7 a.m we were exhausted so we were sitting in a cafe in London Bridge to have breakfast. A homeless person came to me and said thank you for doing the night walk for this homeless charity and I told I asked him I said tell me your story what's life been like for you? He said that he had been homeless for 30 years and that He has traveled on British Rail. He has traveled the whole country, seen all sorts of stuff. And he looked really happy about that. And he said, do you know what? When I get a little bit sad or depressed, do you know what I do? I said, please tell me. He took out of his pocket two metallic spoons and using these started singing. He he created some music. He started singing and dancing. And he went, ta-da! And he looked so happy. Honestly, that was one of the pivotal moments of my life because I, in that moment, I realized the art of happiness. In that moment, he probably created more value for me than many other people had. He taught me a massive lesson. That's value creation, where you make someone's life better, happier, more successful. And he did that. So if he can do it, with his background,
0: I think anyone can that's interesting I, inevitably I'm always interested as to the question around who or what inspires you, but you know you've talked about the inspiration that your your father had provided in terms of you know in terms of his upbringing and the stories that he'd shared with you and you've talked about the inspiration from the homeless gentleman that you just it can come in so many different ways and forms and I think that the world in which we find ourselves. You know, we, we put people who've achieved material success, and I'm not decrying the achievements of someone like a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk or whoever it might be of that magnitude, it, it takes an, an enormous amount of talent and capability and resource to be able to do what those guys have, have done. Or indeed, if we look at the way the Queen, we, talk, we touched on the Queen, we're having this conversation today, um, the day after the Queen had passed away, you know, the inspiration that she's been able to provide for so many inspiration comes in many forms, but we tend to almost have this sort of celebrity view of inspiration, you know, with people have achieved what we perceive to be from a celebrity or something that has awarded them celebrity. Inspiration can come in so many forms. Who or what else perhaps inspires you?
1: You know, earlier when I talked about leaving our egos at the door so that we can make the right decisions and really collaborate with people, in terms of who I learn from or who inspires me and motivates me, I've had to shift my mindset as well, because if I ditch my prejudices, everyone has some biases, right? Some prejudices, some assumptions that we make in order in order to function in our own heads, right? Uh, that's human. But if we challenge ourselves and really ditch our prejudices and recognize that we could learn from a variety of people, we can really grow and succeed in life. I've learned as much from the queen, and of course she comes from a privileged background, aristocracy, the monarchy. I've had to really challenge myself and say, what can I learn from her? And the truth is, I can learn a lot from her work ethic, her sense of duty, the service she's given to this country. There are many things I can learn from her, as much as I learned from that homeless person who described his life and learnings to me. So if I ditch my own prejudices, I can learn and be inspired by a variety of people every day. Migrant leaders, mentees, I learn a lot from them when they describe their challenges to me and how they are dealing with it. Every day I'm learning from the young people as well. We just have to ditch our prejudices.
0: So who do you admire or what do you admire?
1: Oh, so so many people. Uh, I admire our Migrant Leaders patrons, um, Dr. Yvonne Thompson and René Carriol, for uh, very different reasons. They're both really inspiring and I learn a lot from them. I learn from the young mentees. I've had hundreds of conversations with Migrant Leaders mentors in order to recruit a thousand mentors. And every conversation has been a learning one, And very frequently, I admire those mentors and their own journeys. Who do I admire a lot? If I'm honest, I really like Michelle Obama because she's got such a positive outlook. uh, And she's such an ambitious woman. And she's not afraid of that ambition. She is not afraid of advising young girls to have ambition. And I really admire that. And yet, she's got such a feminine and positive Aura about her, very, very, very inspirational woman. Melinda Gates is another one who I find really inspiring. There are so many people to name, men and women, who I find uh, inspiring, and I am excited by the prospect of meeting many more who I will learn from and uh, and be inspired by. Really, right now, life is great, and I'm really grateful to how lucky I have been with migrant leaders to have such a kind of organization that creates this effect for so many people, including myself. So many of our mentors and corporate partners talk about the reverse mentoring effect of being part of migrant leaders and how it has energized them in their life and careers. So it's a great place to be right now, to be honest.
0: So what drives you?
1: What drives me? Really good question. I do want to fulfill my own potential because fulfilling one's potential, I find, makes you happy. Um, you know, everyone wants to feel counted. Everyone wants to feel that their talents were not untapped. That's why what drives me is helping others discover their unique talents. Every single human on this earth has some unique talents, things that are, they're really good at. And I want to help others discover that. And I want to help them fulfill their potential because that's what I think is what happiness is about. Uh, I want us to be happy together and I want us to work together to achieve that. And I want us to grow the British economy so that we have the resources to make that happen.
0: And in terms of, I mean, I know you've... uh... Phenomenal work ethic yourself. So it sort of begs my whether or not my next question is almost redundant. I was going to ask, away from work, what do you do? did you, you get any time away? How do you unwind? How do you relax?
1: Of course, of course. Even as a child, if I'm honest, I liked being productive. So even my downtime was, if I'm honest, productive. And I'm not advocating that for everyone, but I really enjoy being productive. If I'm reading, I like to be learning If I'm talking, I like to be learning and teaching, but I do have downtime and the things I do in my spare time, I probably do very badly, such as dancing salsa and Zumba. I am at best mediocre, but I enjoy it. You know, my Zumba is not productive. It's by no means leading practice, but I love it. Mm. So I I definitely enjoy uh, Zumba. I enjoy a little bit of Pilates as well. And I love spending time with friends and family, uh, cooking, eating, feeding people, eating their food, uh, giving them food. You know, definitely food is a common denominator and traveling to different countries as a family uh, with our kids. You know, we've traveled to many different continents and countries, and it's always exciting for all of us uh, to discover new places and new people.
0: I'd imagine that, and particularly those those sort of rich cultural experiences that you enjoy. Also, I think that if you look at the 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 mentor program, I think arguably are you a are you better equipped as a mentor having had some of those the richness of those experiences and the learning that that affords you? I would argue you would be.
1: Yes, I think so because every time you meet someone different to you, you begin to question your assumptions. Mm. And it's really good to challenge ourselves and be honest with ourselves. Many of the assumptions that we make about people are limiting us, ourselves, and limiting others in some way. So it's good to question our assumptions. And therefore, the more people I meet and speak to in my professional life and personal life, the more I learn about people, which helps me take care of the some of the nuances in those mentoring conversations.
0: You mentioned reading. I I mean, I love to read. It's my favourite pastime. I always like to, a a book recommendation never goes amiss. What what are you reading? Do you still have that? I imagine you do still have that same appetite to read. What are you reading currently? What might you recommend to listeners?
1: Yeah, I have the appetite, but to be honest, I always I'm reading articles, books and things, but at a much slower pace than when I was a kid, because I now have my own kids to look after and a household to run. So uh, in a dual career household. So I'm always busy with things that I need to do. And I love that family life. But recent books that I've really enjoyed reading. Actually, I'll show you. One of them is here. It's uh, The Teenage Brain, because I wanted to understand a little bit more about how to fine tune my parenting style and this book, in summary, taught me that actually the frontal lobe of children doesn't get developed until they're about 25. So don't blame your teenage children for um, doing some irrational or risky things. Recognize that you need to be their frontal lobe until they're about 25.
0: That's interesting. <laughs> so
1: that's in summary. What that, that's what that book taught me.
0: I have an 18 and a 20-year-old, so that's going to come in very handy. I should – not quite teenage, but I should certainly – certainly look to be that frontal lobe for them for the next few years.
1: Absolutely, because sometimes they don't feel the risk. And we've all been there. I remember at university thinking nothing of saving money and at 2 a.m. saying to my friends, bye, see you tomorrow, and walking home on my own at 2 a.m. I didn't really feel any risk about that. Now I can't believe with my parents' hat on, I can't believe I I ever did that as a student. Clearly my frontal lobe wasn't there.
0: (laughs) So, so looking back, what, what advice might you give your 21 year old self?
1: Oh, plenty. Don't worry so much because at 21, I had no connections. All I had was a degree. I had no connections, no money. I had to rebuild my family relationships because of all the breakup and upheaval. I really had very little. And I worried and worried about that. I kept involuntarily extrapolating what my life will end up with, given my situation. But particularly for analytical types, mathematical types, don't extrapolate too much. Don't calculate too much because your estimation of where your life is going to end up is actually very faulty. Your mathematical model in your head is really faulty because You don't know who you're going to meet, you don't know what opportunities will present themselves, actually ditch the calculations for a while and believe that anything is possible. Because when you believe that, opportunities present themselves. And more importantly, you see the opportunities and you take the opportunities. So to my 21-year-old self, I would say ditch the calculations and be a bit more positive.
0: And so what does the future look like for you?
1: The future is amazing. And what is really exciting is it could be anything. I really don't know. I know that I love my family life. I know that I love migrant leaders. I know that I love my career with the corporates. So the future will have all those three things, but it also could be bigger than that. You know, so not knowing for the first time is kind of exciting, really, really exciting.
0: So tell us how where can people where can listeners go to find out more about migrant leaders
1: So I would really encourage listeners to go to migrantleaders.org.uk our website because if you want to volunteer as a Mentor, if you know you're a professional in any field, you know, our thousand mentors come from a variety of companies and a variety of technical fields from finance people to marketing people to creative industries. You know, we've got a variety of mentors. If you want to volunteer as a mentor, email inquiries at migrantleaders.org.uk. You'll find all that information on our website. Uh, migrantleaders.org.uk. If you know young people who uh, are from disadvantaged backgrounds, you you might be a trustee at a school, um, you might have connections to educational institutions, talk to them about Migrant Leaders. Certainly you can email us and I will email you information about our free programme that you can then socialise with educational institutions. So help us spread the word, basically, and look on our website, migrantleaders.org.uk.
0: Fantastic. Um, I think it's it's wonderful work that you're doing. Migrant Leaders is a terrific organisation. It's a terrific group of people. It's doing wonderful things with wonderful people. And I think that's incredibly powerful when you combine those things. I I really appreciate your time and insight to tell us more about the great work you're doing, the great work that your mentors and mentees are doing this morning and indeed to share with us a bit more about your story and how you arrived to be doing what you're doing today. And um, it's been great to have you on. Really appreciate it. I wish you continued success and uh, look forward to watching migrant leaders continue to thrive.
1: Thank you so much for that opportunity. And I've really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Thanks, Alham. All the best. Hi, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to today's Astrology podcast. I really appreciate your uh, audience and ears. Uh, If you've enjoyed it, then uh, why not hop onto iTunes and give us a review? I'd really appreciate anything that you might have to say, any feedback always gratefully received, and uh, look forward to hosting you next time. See you soon. Just a reminder, today's podcast is brought to you by Progresso Talent Partners. Visit www.progressotalent.com today for more information.